Uh, what did you have for breakfast today? I had a red rooster, um, <laughs> like bacon and egg roll. Oh, wow. <laughs> two hash browns and a cup of coffee. Delicious. Welcome to Uncommon, the podcast that helps you build your knowledge, skills, and mindset through interviews with unique individuals. My name is Jordan Michaelides, and I'm your host. To learn more about our array of guests, just head to neural.com slash podcast. In this episode, I have for you Dion McCurdy. Dion is a lawyer and co-founder of New Vote, an independent, non-partisan, non-for-profit. New Vote is a foundation whose aim is to enhance democracy through their digital participation app, allowing you to gain access to a dedicated public record of every political issue, a source of balanced information, a tool to co-create policy, and a channel to communicate with your representatives. Look, politics is a fascinating area we've covered across many interviews with MPs, media commentators, and pundits. So I thought this would be a prudent interview to get an individual that really help us all better understand the structure of democracies. Democracy and free speech, in my opinion, is being tested in the West by polarizing groups from both the left and the right. So I think this interview should really kick us off in the right direction around structuring and maintaining democracy one of the most important creations for managing societies today. In terms of key topics we covered, we got into a lot. Uh, it obviously had more of a legal background, so we started off with law and politics, KPIs for society, law and order. We then got into types of democracy, things like direct democracy, plebiscites and the Swiss system. We spoke about Australia's democratic crossroads, representatives and politicians, and then got into new votes of what it is, when and how Dion decided to create it. We then got into barriers to politics today, what a future ideal democracy or utopia may look like, and finding middle ground in society as well. So I think this will be very enjoyable for those who have liked our previous interview on politics. This is more getting into the structure of democracies. And I think it's really useful for people who want to understand structures of organizations and leadership and so forth. Um, in terms of other episodes that would be really similar, uh, we had the recent episode with Jamie Scala, episode 68, which was on blockchain and voting. So how you can integrate that into voting and governance. And then also with Jeff Kennett, the former Victoria Premier episode 59, where we spoke about politics and life. If you want the show notes for those episodes, just head to our index at neural.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, as I always say, subscribe on your app or share with one of your friends. This will go a long way in building our audience week by week. Thank you all for coming back for our regulars and for our newbies. Thanks for joining us and giving us a chance. I hope everyone enjoys this fantastic conversation with Dion McCurdy. Dion, we're live. Thank you very much for joining me today on what is regrettably a very sunny, sunny Melbourne day. <laughs> In Brisbane, it's sunny. Here, it's, <laughs> it's um, trying to be. Not so much. Um, 
what was your earliest memory of being interested in law? Well, actually, uh, probably in the middle of my second year of university. Okay. And I was completing a Bachelor of Arts and I didn't really want to finish university just yet. And I sort of thought, how can I extend this experience longer? You know, <laughs> what else can I learn? And uh, my passion really was for politics and democracy. And uh, so I thought, well, law will complement that well. And it'll also, um, you know, prov- provide me the opportunity to have a career if if all else fails. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's not a bad sort of backup. Yeah, that's, I sort of had the same view. I was going to uni and I was like, I want to start a business. I know that eventually. Mm. But what is the thing that I could fall back into? And mm. I, I thought maybe accounting. I did accounting, banking and finance. I thought, okay, well, I'll probably be able to get a job in finance or mm. a consulting firm. If, if it really came down to it, you know, and I thought that would be a good fallback. Mm. What, why, why were you so passionate about politics and democracy? That is a good question and, and it's almost one I can't answer. I know that my mum says when I was a child, uh, I wanted to be the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Okay. Um, I, I was born in New Zealand. Right. Whereabouts? Uh, Christchurch. Right. Okay. Yes. And, uh, and that morphed into becoming Prime Minister of Australia and then I wanted to be a cop and a number of other things. Uh, but, you know, th- th- throughout it, I guess, I just always had an interest in the macro level of things. You know, um, actually, I had, I had given some thought as to why I perhaps have the kind of brain that I do and the interest that I do. And, you know, strangely enough, it might have to do with a, um, a TV series and a computer game that... Uh-huh. Yeah, so... <laughs> what, what, are, what is this uh, said series and computer game? Well, the series is Star Trek. Okay. Um, because it sort of um, envisions a world in which humans have come to terms with um, their conflicts and, uh, and, and become united in a way that no one was thought possible um, when we experienced um, you know, <laughs> aliens. And, um, and the second one was a computer game called Civilization, which... Um, it's sort of you create a civilization, you control cities, you control armies, uh, you know, the economics and so on. Yeah, that sounds really familiar. Mm. How old is this game? Oh, the original one was back in the 90s. There's probably about six civilizations now. Right, okay. I was, I was largely into Civ 2, okay. um, Civ 5 somewhat. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the, the, this kind of um, this game sort of really makes you think broadly. It makes you think about the entire world and um and so you know when i started studying politics at university uh i I, my mind always takes me to you know how how do we kind of like make the situation better yeah so sort of you felt that these games you see i wonder if it was it seems like a chicken and egg problem was it the games that made you civic-minded from a young Mm. age or was it the fact that you were civic-minded and it just stood out to you Mm. you know it's hard to say. It was probably. I think it's probably fate that that the game just landed on my, you know, my desk. My older brothers, um, they're they're both engineers. Um, I suppose they were nerds, and um, <laughs> and so it was a pretty nerdy game to play. And, yeah. You know, I just got addicted to it. And about the democracy and politics, is it is it the solving of problems, or is it the the communities getting along with each other? Like, what gives you the biggest, you know, feeling internally? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, the the broad statement is that I want to make the world a better place, <laughs> and so that incorporates both those things. Uh, more specifically, the type of uh, work that I'm doing is about making better decisions. 
right, so okay. that people have better lives. Right. Um, democracy is messy. It's 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 not always people getting along, you know, 100%. Yeah. But uh, we can use better democratic processes, specifically deliberative democracy, uh, to ensure that all voices are heard and that competing um, interests are, tra- uh, are traded off mm. and um, uh, decisions are made that, um, you know, are supported by the majority of people. Yeah. When I said I had a podcast interview recently with um, a former Victoria Premier, uh, his name's Jeff Kennett, and you you may know him because he's just like he's a big political commentator nationally, mm. but he's uh, he's a bit larger than life here in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, he spoke about the fact that like a lot of politicians don't really have like a goal or a vision towards what they want their community to be. And like, let's say Australia or Victoria as an example. And I'm just curious, like you spoke about improving people's situations. Like what are the, you know, if you, if, if politics was a business and you were looking at things like ROI and return on equity and all this sort of stuff, what are the things to you that stand out as, as being crucial that society is going forward or, or becoming better? Mm. Well, I don't think I can really think of anything original. It's probably the core things like education, health, um, that we're looking after the environment. Mm. Yeah, no, look, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought, you know, maybe it'd be something like levels of literacy, numer- numeracy, like education, as you mentioned. Mm. Maybe something like average income, or like income per capita mm. could be an interesting one mm. because I noticed that obviously a lot of the most wealthiest nations have the highest income per capita. Mm. Um, I don't know. Like it's a hard one, isn't it? Mm. Maybe things like live, what do they use for the livability index and all that sort of stuff? I, mm. I do wonder. But I think if I, if it had to come down to, to one thing, it would be um, a society in which people are um, able to live the best version of themselves. Right. So they're not struggling, um, you know, in um, with their health. You know, they're not um, struggling to get an education. They live in a good environment. Uh, you know, the so that all of the um, the pieces are put together so that people can, um, you know, lift themselves. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I do think education is a crucial one. I was I was reading a piece by it was a really really big editorial by the New York Times recently. Um, that I came across and it was it was comparing the education systems against each other of uh, like five different countries or maybe it was four. It was America, China, Australia, Sweden and the UK, mm. I think. I think maybe China may not or may have been in there. I can't remember. But I definitely know that the other four were there. And it compared all of them and it showed that out of those countries, Australia has the best system. Mm. Um a lot of the comments covered that they didn't even cover the fact that we have things like youth allowance. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the main point was that of our education system, it allows people to jump out of the, the lower class. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of the other education systems really struggle to mm-hmm. allow people to do that, whether it's the cost or just the, the structures of the society, like whether it's the UK, which has a naturally classless society. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. We live in a country that, by most measures, is doing very well. 
Yeah. You know, so I don't I don't go around telling people, you know, the the sky is falling in. We do <laughs> we do have a pretty good situation here in Australia, but it's not um it's not perfect. It's su- it's suboptimal. There, yeah. You know, there are we still we can't just compare ourselves to the world and say, "Oh, well, we're doing pretty all right comparatively." Um, you know, so let's just, you know, get over it sort of thing. We we need to be the guiding um, you know, nation in the world. I think uh, we're innovative and um, we've got a, an ethos of fairness about us. Um, I think we should take the, the leadership role. I definitely think so. I think there's a lot that we can offer and we'll get into um, direct democracy and structures of democracy later because I really want to get into that. Mm. But firstly, you mentioned before your, your mother. Yes. Um, what lessons, whether directly or indirectly, do you think your parents have passed on to you that you hold with you today? Wow. Well, so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my father died when I was five, um, right. actually, so I've, I have a few memories of him. But um, my mother, you know, from New Zealand, one of the most um, generous, loveliest, friendliest people that you would meet, uh, incredibly hardworking. And uh, I suppose, you know, uh, I'm a little bit of a product of privilege. We weren't a rich family. Um, you know, we were middle class, if, if anything. But um, education was important to our family. Uh, my mum had been a teacher. Uh, she went back when my father died um, to study health and safety, okay. um, a new career that she, she went into. And uh, even now, um, in, in quite light stage, she's doing a, a, her PhD. So, um, you know, I suppose the importance of education and um, being a good person <laughs> are the main things I can kind of think of right now. Yeah. How do you think that your dad's death impacted you at such a young age? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I suppose there's, um, there's evidence to suggest that people who lose their fathers at a young age um, sort of have to, you know, prove themselves. Uh, there was there was a study about um, British prime ministers where there's an you know an uncanny number of of them that really? didn't have fathers yeah wow. um, and you know I, it's it's hard for me to say because it was it happened when I was so young it was just life for me just didn't you know didn't have a father um, I I had friends fathers that I would often you know um, sort of surrogate with <laughs> uh, but um, yeah I don't I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I still haven't, I guess, unpacked all of that. <laughs> no, it's a, it's an interesting point. Um, that's a really interesting fact that pr- uh, there's like a disproportionate amount of prime ministers that mm. that, that didn't have fathers. Mm. In your earlier career, I noticed when researching and going through LinkedIn and all that sort of stuff that you had a lot of your early career as a lawyer and supported writing for. Dr. John DeGroote. Is it mm, DeGroote? That's right, yes. Yeah. Um, I know he's one of the founders of the law firm that you worked worked for for quite a while. Mm. What influence do you think he had on your career in law? Mm. Well, you know, I said to you before that I went into law because I needed it to, uh, you know, help sort of support the political science. And what I actually found was that being a lawyer um, – was incredibly useful. The skills that I got out of that, that I, I didn't realize that I would get out of that. So, um, you know, the, the clarity and the, the conciseness, the analytical skills, the, 
you know, the persuas- persuasion skills, mm. you know, elegance in writing and so on. John de Groot is a perfectionist <laughs> and, um, you know, and that's great. That's what you want in a lawyer. Uh, it, he was um, an excellent educator. He took it really seriously to make sure that we were trained properly. Mm. Um, it's, it's the kind of law firm where um, you do spend an extra few hours on things just to make sure they are 100% right before you take them to your, your boss to get checked. Yeah. Um, and John's a great storyteller as well. Uh, so, you know, he would, he would often entertain, you know, young lawyers and, and the whole firm really with um, uh, an array of experiences that he's had. Um, you know, it was, it was a real uh, honour to, to be trained under him. Mm. And you, so you were committed to as a solicitor, or admitted, sorry, um, in the Supreme Court in Queensland, right? Mm, mm. What sort of law were you practicing? So exclusively in the area of wills and estates. Ah, okay. Yes. And yeah. Why? Why that area? Uh, well, to be honest, that's where I got a job. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'd uh, finished my degree and I'd, I'd gone overseas for eighteen months, and come back, and it was the worst possible time in you know, graduate history to try and get a job as a lawyer. When was this? Well, it was 2012. Okay. So it was a few years after the GFC, but it took a while for the GFC to really flow through to the law firms. Mm-hmm. They'd sort of been okay for a little while and then it just got to that um, that point that, you know, uh, you know, the graduate positions just dried up completely. If you didn't if you didn't do the summer clerkship with them and and be one of the like the one f- of yeah first to go yeah yes then then you didn't have a chance wow so I, I had to um, get through uh, the back door I, I I got a job as a temp okay I I started at Degroots doing billing literally the bills and uh, you know I did that for a couple of months and in the spare time while I was there I would write procedures manuals you know for my job so that if anybody ever had to come in they would be able to use the the system and know exactly what to do. And uh, one day, um, Margot Agrude, actually, who's um, John's wife and also, um, you know, one of the directors there and founders, uh, she uh, saw these procedures manuals and thought, well, that's really strange for a temp to come in and actually sort of go above and beyond and and ask me what my deal was. And I said, well, I'm actually a lawyer and I would really like to have a law job. So, you know, that's how I got in. Wow, there you go. Mm. Did you ever have any dreams of being a constitutional Lawyer or anything like that? For a, for a pretty long time, I was um, I was a fan of uh, I think his name's Jack McCoy from Law and Order. Okay. Yeah, that that I mean that's probably played a little bit of a part. Yeah, right. so more more that kind of you know putting putting bad guys away and um, just being sort of virtuous and upstanding right. in your in your conduct. Was he amongst others that you sort of idealized growing up in the legal sphere? Yeah. I don't know if I have too many other heroes in the legal sphere, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, That's a good one. I do like Law and Order. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have like a, a favorite Law and Order series? Was it SVU or just standard Law and Order? It was the st- standard one. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I did, I, I enjoyed SVU as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to get into what New Vote is, but I, f- I felt like when I went through and I did these questions, I made all my notes, I felt like maybe we should preface it with focusing on direct democracy and politics before Mm. we get into what you're doing because it really gives a lot of Mm. background to that. Mm. I think most people assume maybe that when they they learn about their democratic system in high school or wherever, 
um, that they think it's sort of like the dominant system. Like, I, I feel like a lot of Australians would grow up assuming that the Westminster system is like where mm. what everyone has in the world, mm. at least in democratic, you know, democracies. Um, are you able to give us like a, a condensed version of like the different types of democracies that you can have? Yes, I can. Uh, well, I mean, representative democracy, which okay. which Westminster is an example of, is the predominant democracy throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, it's it's design um, is largely a result of the thinking of two hundred two hundred and fifty years ago, um, since the uh, American and, and French revolutions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's fair fair that people think of democracy as representative democracy, right? But it's not the only one. And if you look at his, the history of democracy all the way back to ancient Athens, they were using direct democracy, which means rather than uh, voting for a representative who then makes decisions on your behalf, you vote directly on issues. And, uh, you know, the a- ancient um, Athens had a general assembly where, where people would, would um, hear from speakers both sides of an issue and vote directly. But there's also another assembly there that was... Um, Randomly chosen people. This is a term. Okay. There's a term for this called sortition, um, which is almost unheard of today. But it essentially means random selection. And they were the group that actually decided the the topics or the issues that would be decided by the general assembly. Huh. So this random selection um, process sort of became hidden, um, you know, in the late 1700s, um, and that was when the French and American revolutions occurred because. The number twos, you know, the um, in America, the the merchant bankers and the you know the sons of, you know, the upper class, when they were designing their democracy, they didn't want to allow too much power to the people. They didn't want to share their their power with randomly selected people, so they they did it they did away with it and and really just focused on representative democracy. And the world, as a consequence, has been re- revolving around. Um, representative democracy there's a very good book can i just say at the moment it's called against elections the case for democracy okay um and it is uh you know fairly recent book and it does a wonderful job you know it's quite concise it's actually quite short um of of explaining how this is how this has happened and really to democracy's detriment that we focus so much on um voting at elections for representatives. Right. Why, why do you think the ruling class, the landowners, merchants, etc., in America at the time, because I've read Benjamin Franklin's uh, biography, it's really interesting to read the components about mm-hmm. how they formulated the Republican system, essentially. Um, why do you think they decided to go with a representative system? Do you feel that they could control it a bit better? Yes, I mean to 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 remove the sortition part and and focus on representatives so that they would have more control. Right. Yeah. You don't think that they could control it with media and otherwise. That that has happened. That right. is the case now. But um, if you have if you have randomly selected people um, and they are able to hear from experts, you know, um, in person, you know, the proponents, the opponents. And, uh, you know, best case scenario, they're able to request to see their own experts, the ones that they want to see. Um, they're not going to be influenced by the media or by politicians shouting at them. Um, this is this. Um, I should I should say that this random selection 
of, of people um, discussing issues um, and deciding issues is ha, has had a revival in Australia in the past 10 years in particular. And Australia and Canada are really leading the way in this and Ireland. How so? Well, it's, uh, it's what we generally term a citizen jury and oh, okay. and uh, you know in 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 almost all cases uh, it's a matter of the you know the authority the the, the government of the day uh, saying you know that here's a really complex difficult issue we haven't been able to solve it using partisan politics so let's have a randomly selected demographically representative group of people to look at this issue sometimes it's one weekend sometimes it's over a period of four weekends and six months really yeah but these these groups um are just gold you know there, there is you know virtually no better way of um coming to um you know a sort of balanced evidence-based um decision or you know sort of version of the of the truth than than through these citizen juries really and so these citizen juries are they is this being done at a state or national level in australia in australia it's only state um okay. state and local so south australia did one um only last year on the um the, the nuclear fuel recycling uh, okay. um, plant right. um so jay weatherall was a um instigated that uh, but it's also been used quite a few different places in um in New South Wales and for some uh, local councils. Yeah, that's that is super interesting. Um, I, I want to go back to the the idea of the sortition and how how this formulated in a Greek system. So, how would a direct democracy be structured? What would be the different governing bodies or levels of the government? But you're asking specifically about ancient Greece, or how just would like we do it now? the idea of of when people used a sortition, maybe pre 1700s, mm, as you were mm, saying. Mm. Well, so there was um, there was the the body that was um, chosen to um, pick the issues that would be decided by the general assembly, but they also used sortition for the um, appointment of of roles in government. Ah, okay. There was only about one or two roles. So I think the the generals of the military and it might be the finance um, were sort of um, selected based on merit, but all other roles um, were randomly selected um, right. citizens. Right. Um, they had a really um, sophisticated system of doing so, people having um, the stones and stones being put into this big wooden um, cascading uh, machine and, and random numbers came out and they would hold the, the role for, for a year, I think it was. Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's a level of, of sortition people are probably not very comfortable with <laughs> um, Im- implementing um, in this day and age. But um, it's, it's not impossible either. So, direct democratic systems that um, are known today, are there examples? Yeah, so... The most famous example is Switzerland because they have it at the federal level and they have it at the canton level and at the local level. Um, There are other jurisdictions. Germany, I think 10 to 15 years ago, didn't have any direct democracy thanks to an organisation there called More Democracy. Uh, They, all states now have direct democracy there, Mm -hmm. Um, but not at the federal level because the constitution doesn't allow it, um, which is, um, you know, there's currently a campaign to try and remove that. Um, but, you know, like 22, I think, of the U.S. states have um, a, a version of direct democracy. Interesting. Yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's around. Yeah. Mm. So, for me, the Swiss system is my favourite. I found this years ago. Mm. 
How would you explain the structure of the Swiss system to someone? Well, they have representative democracy just like we do. Yeah. You know, 95% of legislation um, is dealt with by the politicians and, you know, without the need of the people. Mm-hmm. But um, the people have uh, a level of power there uh, that they can collect signatures. I think it's about 100,000 signatures and um, they form a committee and that if they collect that many signatures, it goes on the ballot and um, they also vote twice to, to pass legislation through um, through the people. So it's it sort of acts as a kind of like a, a Damocles sword. You know, it's it says, you know, you can go and do your job, um, but if you don't do it properly, we're here and we're going to do it for you. Right. So they also have um, uh, another... Um, the function of that is that if the government passes a law that the people don't approve, then they can collect signatures and, and have that law removed. Oh, interesting. Mm. And wow. so that right is written into their constitution. So it's, it's, it's really, um, it's quite, um, you know, we can, we can only dream really for that to happen because in yeah. Australia, um, to have any kind of direct democracy, whether it's, you know, deciding an issue like what the the same-sex marriage postal plebiscite uh, postal survey was um, or changing the constitution, it's the prerogative of the government to decide whether, you know, the people will have their voice or not. Yeah. Whereas in, in Switzerland, it, it's by right. They they can't have that right taken away. Wow. That's really interesting. I mean, why, why do you think a direct system, I mean, it sort of seems self-evident, but for people who are doubting it, why do you believe a direct or more direct system is better well, you know, the evidence suggests that when people have direct say on issues that they vote um, to improve their, their themselves, their family and their, their community. Um, the jurisdictions in the United States that have um, direct democracy, um, there, there are studies that show that people have higher subjective levels of um, happiness. Um, the, the thing is, is that in representative democracy, we're asked to vote once every three or four years, and it's this real meta decision. You got to take yeah. into account, you know, all the different policies that the parties have. You know, the, the history of the parties, the personalities of the people that, uh, that are involved, um, and somehow you're meant to make this one decision. And then the politicians are able to sort of run off and say, "We've got a mandate. You know, that we we can do we can do this and this and this now because we're elected." It's not always the case. I mean, it's very difficult to interpret what the will of the people is yeah. when they've sort of only got a couple of choices every few years. So um, direct democracy gives people the ability to have their say directly on issues and, um, you know, sort of bypass the, um, the bottleneck that sometimes politicians are. And so if you looked in, um, at Australia right now, um, I mean, the same-sex marriage has, has passed now, but that was you know, 10 years in the making that there was public support for it. Mm. Um, Euthanasia support is about 83%, but politicians, you know, have have such difficulty getting there. I think, is it in Victoria that they've just recently? Yeah, just recently. Mm. Um, I don't know to what extent it Mm. allows for it, but Mm. it's only, it's very, very recent. Yeah, and and it is quite a, it is quite a narrow condition. Yeah. I think, but um, you know, so there's there's a lot of issues like this. You know, climate change is another one. People want action on climate change, and um, governments have been able to sort of prevaricate around that. Yeah. You know, based on you know election results and changing leaders and things like that. That that makes a lot of sense. So you know, a government gets voted in, 
they believe they have the mandate to do what they want, whether that's changing their original policy or whatever. Um, and we're, in a way, we're showing that that may be the case in their mind, but you know, you can't really translate what the entire population believes mm. on every single issue. Mm. And so, what happens is you get this bottleneck, bottleneck of nothing really being decided on. Mm. Um, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, it, it's one thing I know that my father's always complained about the fact that politicians don't have enough time, but I feel like you know, being able to vote on issues more regularly may deal with the fact that they don't have enough time. Yeah, no, I think Because then so they too. can just handball the issues that they can't get solved themselves mm. to the general populace. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, when you wrote, you mentioned before about the same-sex marriage vote, um, I was reading your Swiss Info article. Uh, it actually, like, really inverted my perception immediately. Like... If you consider the postal vote it, in the form of direct democracy, it's actually a really good thing. Mm. Um, like I know everyone was carrying on and saying this is terrible for for people's mindset and so forth, but all I was thinking was this is awesome. We actually mm. finally get – this will get done. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't know where you sit on that. Do you feel that it was it was good for the, the form of direct democracy that you want? Uh, well, look, f- first thing about that is that it wasn't um, best practice d- direct democracy. No. Uh, so, it cost know, a shitload of money. Yeah, <laughs> it, did, <laughs> it did do that. Um, but the, direct democracy should be um, from the people first, from the grassroots. So um, there should be a demand, you know, we want a, our right to have a say on this issue. Whereas what happened was essentially, you know, the, um, the Liberal Party uh, – couldn't come to legalizing it, and um, as a compromise to the right wing of the Liberal Party, they decided to have this this vote. So that's not ideal. The other thing is is that there was, you know, polls showing over a long period of time consistent support for that issue. So um, it it begs the question: what what's why do we need to why do we need to wait and why do we need to ask that question when there was already enough evidence that that um, decision should go through. Yeah. But having said all that, I'm extremely glad that Australians got the opportunity to vote on, yeah. on, on that issue because it was the, it's extremely rare in Australia's history to be able to do that. Very, um, very rare. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of amazing. And so um, people, people got the opportunity to, to have their say directly on an issue, which is, um, you know, and we got 80%, 79-point-something percent of people took the opportunity to vote on a voluntary um, basis. And that's exceptionally high when you look around the world. So what that shows me is that Australians do want to have their say directly on issues. And that's supported by other surveys as well that that show that people want to have their say. Do you know like what other topics we've had votes on? Obviously, there was the referendum. Yeah, so, well, the referendums have to... um, a little bit different yeah it's a, it's it's a little bit different yeah the uh, um, amending constitutions other than that um there was a question of um the conscription oh, um, right, right. It, it, during the war and um and that was on two occasions and then i think in the 1970s we voted on the uh national anthem and uh that's that's it from a federal point of view mm. um I'm, I'm i couldn't tell you how many state-based plebiscites have taken place but it's not that many yeah 
what would you like to see more of if if there was a more uh form of direct democracy in australia would it mm. be in obviously let's assume you can't ingrain some of this stuff in the constitution is it these citizen juries or would you like to see more referendums at state and federal level? What, what would it be? I want both. Yeah. That's the thing. You're, you're asking me to, to split between two things that I think are both extremely useful. Right. Um, and that's really where I come from with, um, with New Vote. The design of it is to incorporate direct and deliberative elements. Um, I, I, I didn't really want to spend, you know, 20 years of my life trying to get you know, one thing changed in a, in, a, in a constitution or, you know, one procedure changed. And so that's why New Vote is kind of the tool that um, the people can use to make all sorts of changes, you know, in, in every every facet of our lives. Mm. Um, so that's, if you if you ask can, um, to have one or the other, I, I, I almost can't answer that. Because I, I, I don't think, I mean, the, the sort of a short criticism of, of citizen juries is that, um, people can feel a bit excluded. They're sort of like, you know, who are these sort of special people that were chosen and, you know, I sort of didn't get my say kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, direct democracy doesn't um, work as well um, to make evidence-based decisions. Mm. So because not, not everybody's going to be as well informed um, and whereas citizens in a jury take their responsibilities very seriously and um, and they can get to that very high level of understanding of issues. These juries, are they actually sworn in? No, I don't no. think so, okay. no. Um, when it comes to, I mean, what relevance does the idea of a republic have in the potential to develop a more direct democratic Australia? We we can do it. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand the question. Sorry. Well, like, do you think it could allow... I guess organize, organizations like yours to push further for a restructuring of the constitution. Mm, mm, mm. Well, you know, I do I do see that as a possible outcome of of New Vote that we can crowdsource ideas. We can, you know, work across the country to come up with ways of improving our democracy. We sort of, you know, there's a bit of a set and forget um, you know, aspect to our democracy, as in it was set in 1901. Mm. And, um, you know, with changes around the edges, it's been exactly the same ever since. It has, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, a, a conservative might say, and, and so sh- so it should be. But um, at this time in history in Australia, there's there's never been a lower level of trust in government. There's never been lower levels of confidence in democracy. There is a, a huge and growing gap between... Um, you know, what citizens want and what politicians are delivering. This is sometimes described as the democratic deficit. And, um, you know, there's really no denying that we're at a crossroads in our democracy. There's been, you know, challenges to it all over the world. There's this concept of the, you know, the strong man um, versus the, you know, <laughs> weak democracy kind of thing. Yeah. And, the, and, and democracy is, you know... F- Fragile. It, it needs to be protected. It, it needs to be um, enforced and it needs to be updated to, you know, the, the period of time that we're in. Mm. Where, where do you see the state of politics right now, particularly in Australia? Uh, I'm probably going to say no comment because we, we, um, we come from a nonpartisan point of view and, um, and we're, we're, we're positive, you know, we, we're optimistic 
um, we're looking for solutions um, for the future. So, you know, I don't, I don't like to sort of get dragged into <laughs> the specifics because, you know, um, you know, everyday politics sometimes focuses on things that are just completely irrelevant to yeah. everyday people's lives. And, you know, that's a, that's a, some, a symptom of the way that the media operates as well. Mm. What consideration have you given for entering politics? Like, do you feel that could it could it be that you could affect the change that you want as well through becoming a representative? No, and I don't why think is that? so. Well, because in studying politics, I um, learned to appreciate the degree to which politicians are quite hemmed in. So you know, they even the prime minister, you know, they um, have the the pressure from their electorate maybe to do one thing, public service to do another. They've got pressure from their donors to do one thing, their political party and another. Um, so uh, they've got the media, um, you know, pushing them in one direction and, and other factors as well. So, um, you know, they're actually, you know, they're really sort of like they're all kind of cogs in, mm -hmm. a, in, in the system. And um, I, you know, could obviously have decided, you know, I'm going to be a politician and basically, you know, um, you know, s serve the people in that role, but I didn't feel as though um, that would really change the system. I would just be part of the system, and I might be, um, you know, well looked after by the system and and so on. But um, it wouldn't help the people that I I would like to help. Okay. Now, getting into new vote, um, what was the I guess aha moment that you realised new vote was something that you wanted to do? Hmm. I, I think I would say when I got back from overseas, this is 2012, I, you know, really had a, you know, I'd grown a lot and I had, you know, perspectives from, from different parts of the world. I really realized how lucky I was and um, I wanted to sort of, yeah, make it my mission to make the world a better place. And, um, you know, it took me some time to really work out how, how I was going to do that. And um, it was basically the internet and democracy. Those two things to me seemed like um, we're at a time now where we should be supercharging democracy. Mm. We could be doing so much better. And so that's that was sort of the starts of, of New Vote. I don't know if there was ever a, an aha moment because it's developed over hundreds of conversations. Yeah. Um, being challenged is one of the best things because, um, you know, if someone's just nods along and go oh yeah that sounds great you know that's that's lovely thank you but that doesn't really help me very much yeah um so the the people that are the most critical are the most helpful because okay. they've made me go away and, and think about things for days or weeks or months or even years sometimes yeah that, that influence you talk about internet and democratic systems I, I know you mentioned in one of your articles um you were influenced by democracy os mm. um i think there was uh you spoke about is it per norbach system in Sweden, mm -hmm. what were they coming up with at the time that was sort of to sh starting to shape your view? Oh, just something different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, what, like politics as I'd sort of known it was, you know, um, signs of people's faces on, on people's front lawns and, um, you know, sort of cliche words, um, you know, short attack ads, pieces of paper, ballots, voting. It was all – it was also – um, such a different world to the one that we generally lived in. Hmm. You know, there wasn't um, there wasn't the kind of responsiveness that you know is expected from you know 
private businesses and and you know NGOs and nonprofits and you know we we are living more and more in a world where the crowd um where we can use the wisdom of the crowd where you know people reviewing each other through you know Uber or um you know Airbnb we can be more responsive to each other right and and politics kind of lived out in its own sort of world um so when these when these initiatives came through i i found them quite inspiring um but you know nobody's cracked it yet you know these <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of players in this game um and you know power to them because we do need to have a a selection or a series you know a bunch of different ideas before we get um you know closer to what's going to be the best version yeah i'm very collaborative and and friendly with those that are doing things similar to I, to, to that to that which i am um they just we're, we're different variants because nobody really knows exactly you know what the best system's going to be yeah now new vote is a non-profit non-partisan charity mm. um set up obviously to enhance democracy i know you've created an app mm-hmm. that much i know mm-hmm. what exactly are you working on yes so the app is the largest part of it at this stage. Um, and so it's an app that allows people to learn and discuss, to meet up, um, to vote on issues and potentially take action on those issues. And at a further point in time, we'll be incorporating citizen juries into that process as well. So um, we're sort of trying to get the best of both worlds. Uh-huh. Interesting. And so what would you call this space that you're working on? Is it... Do you call it digital democracy or you would you consider yourselves constitutional advocates of some variety? <laughs> um, digital democracy actually is not a term that most people are really yeah. familiar with. So it's it's probably not worth, um, you know, pushing that term too much. We are, you know, in part um, voter information app. So these, these are apps that are sort of starting to proliferate in the U.S., where, uh, you know, people just get information, you know, the facts about issues. But we're also part um, participatory democracy app. So, um, you know, getting people more involved in, in making decisions. There is no easy language yeah, in this use, area. Yeah. yeah, And, I mean, is it quite different to, like, how different or how does this compare to organisations like My Vote, My Vote or... Um, Another one there was like Flux. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, well, Flux and um, the online direct democracy party, um, people decide, are political parties. So oh. there's a critical distinction right there. Um, we, New Vote will never have candidates and, and won't be, you know, running partisan issues um, or advocating, you know, in, in a partisan way. My Vote um, were initially intending to be a political party. They've... Um, turned off that, um, but they're a quasi party because they're oh, de- really? yeah they're developing policy and they're endorsing independent candidates, okay. which is kind of some of the main functions that political parties perform. Yeah. Um, but strictly speaking, they're not a political party. So yeah, we can distinguish ourselves from those groups, you know, qu- qu- quite easily. And you know, we can work alongside each other. We, you know, there's there's no conflict between having yeah. a sort of, um, you know, the information, you know, non-profit, non-partisan charity over on one side and having 
political parties where members vote and the representatives of those parties have to, you know, comply with... With, with what they vote. Yeah. yeah. Um, why, do you th- why did you think an app was the best channel for this? Why not create a media business or a media non-for-profit or something else entirely? Why, why an app? It's what young people use. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the way that we're, we're interacting with the world is, um, is on our mobile phones nowadays. Um, you know, we still be have access through um, computers, but no, I think there's a lot of a lot a lot of people were doing things, um, you know, with with media and and trying to improve, you know, um, information systems and so on. I, I I found basically I think an opening to try and sort of be be that sort of central um, repository mm. of all political issues, so that people can go there to one place and and have their say. And then get on with their life. Yeah, you know, it's somewhat partly inspired by that kind of the clicktivism. You know, that, that that's usually a criticism that people are you know engage in clicktivism, and I think it's because there's you know there's there's a um you know move on poll here and a change.org poll there and there's a you know political party does a little poll here and so on. It's all dispersed and it's all just like. Um, you know, completely overrun by the information age. Mm. And so I felt like there needed to be one place where people could go and and we we adjust the infrastructure, you know, where the, where the lights and the poles. We don't have an opinion. We want everybody to have their opinion. Yeah. What, what then does the next 12 months look for you guys? What are you up to? Right. Well, um, yeah, it's pretty exciting actually. You know, okay. we're, we're starting to get a little bit of um, traction, you know, our, our prototype is um is up and running now what we need to do is work with some smaller groups and we have them in mind already but i don't think i can say just yet okay um so you're but, doing like a sort of alpha beta test yeah oh, yeah that's right yeah so you know the same principle of you know voting at this national level or state or local can be used um inside an, an organization so a community group a company okay. a, a union whoever, whoever they want to use democratic processes, they can use New Vote to do that. So we're going to test with those groups first. Right. Um, what, and what type of organisations are they? Um, well, there's a political party that okay. is looking to use New Vote. There is um, um, a festival looking to use New Vote. There's okay. a um, an organisation sort of. Uh, how do you describe that? <laughs> <laughs> it's um. It's like an advocacy organisation. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. A state-based advocacy organisation. It's a lot of different things, different mm, areas. Different, yeah. Right. Um, now, one of the things you highlighted when I was reading through your article and you spoke about that before was your concern about the large and growing disconnect. What was the term? Democracy deficit? Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, democratic deficit. Democratic deficit, that's it. Um you believe that the problem there is a barrier that blocks everyday Australians from engaging their representatives. How much of this is, how much of the problem is a barrier versus an information divide? Mm, or, yeah. or are they the same thing? Mm, fair, yeah, fair question. I think to some degree they are the same thing. Right. I mean, um, there was, but see, before the sort of, um, you know, information bubbles that, you know, have grown around us with Facebook and, yeah. and things like that. We're still having these these same problems and same frustrations. Right. So there are the barriers, um, and essentially, there's just um, the old ways of trying to, you know, um, have your say, aren't really working. The you know, you can write a letter to your 
your politician or you know give them a call or whatnot but then like i was explaining before there's so many other influences on them mm. um and so your voice just sort of get gets lost among many so um i think people have sort of kind of rightfully disengaged from politics because they as a rational person they know that there's little influence that they can actually make you know that is without like committing their life to things like yeah. you know I, I think that's why a lot of people are just checking out of political conversations now. Mm. and mm. particularly because i mean i've had on i had on here um a former leader of antifa anti-fascists um in australia uh you know, he sort of highlights how how big these groups are now and how dominant they are on these platforms. Mm. Um, and I think it just makes people further and further just check out of any political conversation. Mm. 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 Um, Young people, when I've spoken to them, have, you know, said time and time again, I don't know where to start. Well, you know, they don't trust anybody. Yeah, they've had enough. I, mm. I mean, I, I speak to my mate regularly about this and... He just says, I've absolutely had enough of this stuff. I just don't mm. want to hear it anymore. It's mm. all in the media. Mm. You know, you have all these topics of discussion, people saying um, certain things from either side of politics, outrage from either side of politics. Um, if you are opposing that, you know, your, if your personality traits are opposed to that sort of politics, then again, you just find the media and everything more and more disingenuous and you start checking out more and more, mm. which I think is a real problem. Mm. Um, I think that could be one of the greatest problems that we've got mm. um, over the next couple of years, mm. particularly in uh, our generation, you know, mm. millennials are just, they're, they're done. Mm -hmm. um, in your mind, what would be the ultimate... Uh, what what would be the ultimate archetype or scenario or system that we could have? What are you imagining in your head with Nuvone? Mm. You know, like what's the the thing that you you dream about and go, this is like the perfect scenario. Mm. Well, I think we have a lot more. Would have a lot more political education. Okay. So the the populace in general would learn more about you know the way that their society is governed, and um, people would have, um, people would suggest solutions, you know, from across the country to issues. And um, we would be able to get data immediately on the level of support for those issues. When um, big issues come up, we would have citizen juries and have, you know, that kind of um, key, key findings and arguments for arguments against feedback into the system so that, can, that people can vote with the highest level of information possible. And then you have politicians that respond to that, um, you know, either, um, you know, enacting changes to, to policy, practice or law, um, you know, in a sort of like a, a, a responsive and accountable way so that, you know, we don't have to wait three years to kick someone out. We can sort of be saying to them, right now, there's a strong majority support for this yeah. to happen. So, so get along with it. Yeah, I've always wondered that, like, you know, the media goes nuts about in the business finance media people go nuts about a ceo not doing their job and they get sacked pretty pretty rapidly same in sport mm. if you're pissed off with your team and how you're going if they go pretty badly if things fall off the rails by the end of the year the coach generally gets a sack mm. so i've always been fascinated by that you know mm. that you couldn't have that viewpoint in politics as well mm. well that's i mean the there are jurisdictions around the world where they have recall elections, 
where you you can just in California, for example, yeah, you simply say, you know, we don't um, believe that you should be the the representative anymore. And it's like holding a reverse election um, (laughs) if you get enough signatures and and, um, you can vote them out. So that's another, you know, potential option for Australia. I really like that. You've mentioned a few times now about jurisdictions having the ability to vote to call a form of election. Mm. We don't have that here, do we? we don't. Okay. It's it's simple like it's like I sort of said before. I think um, the government has the prerogative; they decide whether we have a vote. And or ha- how would you create that? It would be have to be part of the constitution, right? Uh, yeah, to in order to guarantee its um, you know status. Because if you make it under statute law, under just normal parliamentary law, then the next government can come along and get rid of it. Yeah. So um, it would have to be the constitution in order to really secure it. Interesting. But there's a whole bunch of questions around how that works, though. Yeah. I mean, there is no... I, I wonder like, if there was a politician who thought one day, I'm going to introduce this as legislation. Sorry, not as legislation, as a referendum. Mm. And obviously, the people are going to vote it in because they don't trust politicians. But I wonder if that would reinvigorate trust in politicians. Actually, I'll just add to that that um, Switzerland has one of the world's highest trusts in their politicians. I'm not surprised at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they, um, they actually really have far more consensus going on there. Yeah. Because they know that at the end of the day, if they decide to have a partisan position, they can look like idiots because, um, you know, what's really wanted is a, is a, is a path that everybody yeah. can... But, but also, like, the population, because of it, is more civic-minded. Yeah. They're more cognizant of mm. other people. Mm. Um, I sort of noticed that when I was in Japan. We've spoken with previous guests about it. They're very civic, very open-minded of their counterparts in society and how they interact with other civilians. Mm. Um, it's just a different mindset, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, so what, what are the downsides, do you believe, to direct de- democracy? Oh, well... If you don't have the information in place, then you can get bad decisions being made. Okay. That's the biggest thing. So um, I don't want to um, stake out my personal view on this issue, but some people um, believe that Brexit was a mistake. And, um, you know, lo- leading up to that date, the polls were generally saying that it, w- it wasn't going to happen. Um, there was a large amount of misinformation going on in that campaign. People didn't really know what they were voting for. Mm. And, um, yeah, people thought they were voting for something that they weren't. And, you know, there was only sort of like one day in which it sort of got over that 50% mark. Um, and that was the day, you know, that sort of mattered. And um, even though immediately afterwards, a huge number of people said, oh, you know, we didn't realise what we were doing. Can we, <laughs> can we take it back? Um, it, was, it was too late by that stage. So it's, it's, a, it's about... Um, you can't just uh, say say to people, you know, what do you think? You, you need to provide people with information right. in order so that they can make the right choice. And that's where those citizen juries come in. Yeah. Yeah. Most usefully, yes. Yeah. And and before we get to having citizen juries on issues, they're expensive to run, not as expensive as elections and so on, but um, uh, we have wiki publicly editable wikis on issues. So you've sort of got that thousand eyes effect. And, you know, Wikipedia is not perfect it's not the truth but it's a pretty pretty close version sort of truthiness um it's a i think that's the phrase the crowd version of the truth um and it's reasonably good you know and that's not that that along with third party media would be enough to provide balance for people to to make informed decisions 
That term it was truthiness. Mm. That's a really interesting term. Like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, There's a whole study into you know the wikis and stuff like that. I've yeah, I've only read a bit. I, I do love that. I've seen a few documentaries now on how Wikipedia is run. It's it's amazing. Mm. It's quite amazing. Mm. Um, who are the leaders in politics and digital democracy that you respect? Uh, well, I was um, at the Global Forum on Direct Democracy in November 2016 and that was where I sort of um, met these the people that are working in this space. Right. And um, I went across to the other side of the world. I didn't know a single person that was going to be there. I didn't know really what I was going, expecting to find but I really found my family or, you know, one of my families, um, a great group of people that are, are working, you know, um, in various ways to make democracy more democratic. Okay. So there's a few um, leaders there that I that I respect um, working in that space. Um, you know, in in Australia, we've got um, people working on making democracy better. There's a foundation in Sydney called New Democracy, which okay. um, which you know its mission is to um, innovate in democracy and they're 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 really pushing the citizen juries that's their big okay new democracy yeah that's right yeah interesting yeah so there's there's a few um yeah there's a few people that i would mm. uh we'll jump into some short fast questions now for you uh what does your morning routine look like it's uh i swim most mornings Okay. Yeah, I swim, I come back, I have breakfast. Ocean, pool? Pool, okay. yeah. yeah. I live a couple of blocks away from a, from a public pool. Right. Um, so I like to do that to clear my head. Okay. And then um, I'll have some food and then I'll think about what I need to do for the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, yeah, sort of do a couple of hours, have lunch, do a couple of hours and then peter off. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you, I guess, decompress in the evening? Um, well, I like to listen to music. Okay. Yeah, and um, I enjoy the company of my friends. Okay. So I often, um, you know, on Wednesday nights I have dinner at, at a friend's every week. Nice. Um, you know, I play a bit of sport, play um, volleyball. Um, on the beach or in one of those uh, indoor centers? It's beach volleyball, but it's okay. indoor, yeah. yeah. Classic, uh, classic Goldie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, best purchase that's had the most positive impact under $200? Yeah, I, 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 don't, um, I was thinking about this. Perhaps, um, you know, uh, those pull-up banners. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, if you stand behind a desk, um, you're sort of nobody. But if you have a pull-up banner behind you, behind the desk. You're you, somebody. You're somebody. Authority, yeah, yeah. immediate authority. Yeah, it catches people's eyes and they think, you know. Interesting. Well, you're, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you must be something. I'm just imagining someone now like buying a banner, like and creating a personal <laughs> banner, and just walking down the street and then just like pulling it up. <laughs> You'd get <laughs> attention, or yeah. she would. Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm. Um, what frustrates you that society is not able to find a middle ground on? Well, I mean, the obvious answer would be in, in democracy, <laughs> in 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 making a better democracy. Okay. Because um, I think it's in everybody's interest that we do we have the tools there um but politicians are so not all of them i should add you know but um a lot of them are just so sort of old school mm. um they don't want to see things change you find that they're blase yeah yeah um well look dion thank you so much for joining us we've just about capped our time together uh any last requests for the audience where can they find you 
Yeah, come come have a look at newvote.org.au. Okay. We've got information there about, um, you know, democracy, if, if some of this went over your head. There's also the prototype there. You can have a, have a look at that. And there's also ways that you can help us, you know, give us your feedback or, um, you know, support us in, in one way or another. And are you on any form of social media, Twitter, LinkedIn? Yes, I have a Twitter, but I never use it. Um, I, I, we have a Facebook and we have a Instagram, okay. so you can follow me there too. Nice. Or us. <laughs> All right, well, look, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers, thanks. Thank you for making it this far. Before you run off, we have a quick ask for you. Subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon. Or you could also share with a friend. This will go a long way in building our audience, which will help us both get further guests on the show. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Neural, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. But until next time, thanks for listening.